In the air, Srijan takes it! India wins! He'll come back for the second. India have won the test match. India have won the series. They're going to get back for two. India at home. Lords goes wild. Hello and welcome to another edition of the 81 All Out podcast. I'm Sidvi and I'm joined by two very special guests today. We have um, uh, K. Balakumar, uh, who is uh, also K. Balakumar on Twitter. You can follow him. He's a veteran journalist based in Chennai. He has uh, worked for uh, publications like News Time and uh, is an avid cricket fan and is also a uh, cricket reporter for many years. And uh, joining us from um, Sydney is uh, Vijay, Vijay Arumugam, uh, another uh, passionate cricket fan, uh, probably one of the biggest fans of Sachin Tendulkar in the world, uh, after me, that is, of course. And uh, <laughs> Vijay uh, has joined us on the podcast before. And uh, thanks so much. Thanks so much for joining again, guys. Uh, hello. Hi. Nice to be here. Not a problem, Sid, anytime. Uh, here we are talking today, we are continuing our build-up to the 2019 World Cup by going back. Uh, today we are going back all the way to 1987. Um, we are more than uh, sort of uh, uh, a long way back, so to speak, back to the era of black and white, if you want to look at it that way. Uh, it was a very interesting World Cup. It was the uh, first World Cup held outside England. It was also... Um, uh, you know, uh, historic because both India and Pakistan hosted the World Cup uh, for the first time. And uh, in many ways, it was an administrative uh, coup of sorts for uh, the subcontinent to be hosting it. And um, one could say that it was the starting point of uh, where cricket has eventually uh, landed up in the economic sense. I mean, now the subcontinent is uh, the economic center and uh, 87 and uh, 86 and 87, those years were probably the early uh, parts of this uh, uh, story. So let me bring in my guests here. I'd like to start off by just um, talking about where you were in 87, uh, in your, where were you in your life, and uh, how did you follow this World Cup? And, uh, you know, maybe a, one or two personal memories from it, not necessarily from the games itself, but from your own life and maybe where you watched a particular game or one uh, striking memory from it, if you can start off. Bala. See, at 87, I was in the first year of my college. I was I studied in Trichinapalli, Trichy, and I hailed from Madurai. Between Madurai and uh, Trichinapalli, it's hardly two and a half hours drive. So I, my bulk of the matches I watched in Madurai, actually. A lot of friends had come down from different places. So we all... We get bunched together. We all used to get uh, in get in one of our friends' places, watch the matches together. So that started our cricket camera camaraderie. Because back in Madurai at those times, cricket was cricket on television was slowly starting. We, I mean, the first really thing was first 1985. We had watched that uh, World Series, uh, World Championship of cricket in 1985, where which we won and which we won. So that 85 was our first uh, initiation into cricket uh, television watching. 87, since it happened in India, there was much more interest and uh, and uh, since India was started to go go all the way to till the finals, which eventually didn't happen, that's a separate story. And uh, we were all hoping that India would be doing well and uh, that's how we started watching those matches. 
but after the first match itself we were slightly downcast but after those after that first match the next five matches we won on the trot so that was special so those were the initial memories wonderful okay. and what about you vijay uh, thanks sid uh, so this is vijay aramugam so in 1987 i was 10 year old and uh, i was in the school uh, so we used to live in a, a small uh, south uh, indian town called thutukudi it's also known as tutukuren so that's pretty much uh, close to sri lanka than anywhere else so i was in my school and cricket was pretty much crazy over there and 1987 world cup really really captured the imagination of the country so to speak so i still remember we used to talk at school everywhere was in the press and especially as bala talked about the early games were really really close and exciting and suddenly you felt um, everyone was talking about cricket and everyone was watching i also traveled a few times to my hometown sivakasi during the tournament and even there like you know when the game was on even if it was a day time people would pretty much uh, try to get close to a tv and, and watch the games and uh, you know and also the other interesting thing the school where i studied uh, was a 5 minute bicycle ride away from the home which meant uh, we used to come home for lunch and we used to watch a fair bit of cricket during the lunch i still remember the game uh, was the, i think the second game in india new zealand uh, in bangalore uh, we were in dire straits and uh, kapil dev and kiran more rescued us uh, from a very tricky situation in that game i still remember coming back home and uh, for lunch and watching a fair bit of it and then watching a bit of new zealand innings to before going back to school and then coming home as well so it was it was my probably it was my first uh, a multi nation tournament although the 1986 asian games happened in seoul in south korea a year before and uh, uh, and i think we also had the uh i think world table tennis championships in new delhi in 1987 which was big as well but this was a really really first big event uh, a multinational event and that too as bala said was hosted in india and it was exciting the other thing all the other tournaments i was too young when 83 happened and 83 was always known as the prudential cup uh, based on the the sponsor in the uk but 87 for some reason it, it just uh, got to be um, remembered or even at that time as the reliance cup so we talk so much about sponsorship we talk so much about the commercial aspects of the game even back then it wasn't called as the world cup the reason why i'm saying the 1996 nine years later when india hosted when cricket was a, a much bigger economy it was a wills world cup but i hardly heard anyone talking about it as the wills world cup or even the 2011 by then icc had taken over it was the icc cricket world cup but 87 had that distinct reliance cup it was more than a world cup it was a reliance cup and i still remember that uh, you know that uh, particular way in which the phrase was used and it became such a popular thing and, and the other interesting thing was we had only a black and white tv I remember for one of the games uh, we were in a uh, hometown we were at someone's house and they had a color tv so i pretty much watched the whole tournament uh, pretty much every game uh, on um, black and white the other striking thing was the highlights because most games were day games i mean not most all games were day games so we used to get the uh, nightly commentary or sorry nightly highlights and ml jaysima the former indian uh, cricket player or Uh, Tiger Patari the former indian captain they used to host the highlights package i still remember distinctly uh, some of the comments they made so it was good because the sports star which was the magazine from the newspaper hindu so they used to cover it regularly and the indian express and the hindu were the main two newspapers so 
It was everywhere in the print as well as on TV, albeit a black and white one. I bet the World Cup in 87 was really big. And uh, it, it, I, mean, I still remember, and when I think about it, I, though it's many, many years ago, I still have a lot of fond memories of the tournament. There was one article I distinctly remember from India today. The article was about the commercial aspects of the Reliance World Cup. The introduction was, they were they quote Anil Ambani, one of the top directors of Reliance Textiles. He was the man, man behind the whole show. And he's, the story starts off saying that, we are talking about World Cup and Anil immediately interjects and says, what World Cup? This is Reliance Cup. I think it was written by Raj Shengapa, who is now the editor. And you could see it almost everywhere. That was the first time we, cricket was being hard sold in India. And they went after it like hell. I mean, Reliance pulled out all stops to get that going. It was... Very interesting. So one question I uh, wanted to ask you in in this regard is uh, between 1983 and 1987, uh, you know, just uh, anecdotally and also from the feel that you got, did you feel that, you know, in those four years, cricket really uh, became a much bigger sport, a mass sport? And did that 1983 win really widen the wings, so to speak, of the game in India? Yes, most certainly I would say, because after 1983, we had 1985. And that was the first time we were exposed to the Australian coverage. Australian coverage was very important for cricket to develop in India in terms of television and those things. That was the first time we got to see top-notch cricket coverage. And you had uh, the legends like Richie Beno and Bill Laurie so, and uh, early morning cricket coverage. That's 1985 really started it. And we also had 86. In 86 and 87, we went to Australia. And those, store, those Benson Edges tour, which we went to the finals, we, we didn't win. It was a tri-nation, India, uh, Australia, and New Zealand. And that particular tournament was also well-remembered. And we also had that Ropeman's Cup, which we won in Sharjah after, immediately after 1985. Here, famously, Gavaskar won a man of the match for his fielding effort. We, we Wasn't that the tournament where uh, Pakistan were bowled out for 120-odd and India then... No. I mean, the... No, 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 India was India, other way around. 125-87, yes. Yes, exactly. And that was immediately after 85, immediately after Melbourne. We, in fact, India didn't come come to... I mean, India didn't come back from Melbourne to India straight away. They, we, we went to Sharjah and then came back to India. That was the tournament and Gavaskar, the first match, he won for four catches, man of the match, which was unique at the time. So, cricket really took off from that point. And 86, 87, we, so we got to, again got to see India in Australia, though we didn't do well, both in uh, test, we drew that series, if I remember, because Gavaskar scored two centuries. But yeah, it was a draw. Uh, it was a draw and uh, one day internationals, we managed to go into the finals, but we didn't win the finals. 2-0, 0-2, we lost. But uh, those, really, those that particular period really set it up and we also had the tight test in between in India. In Madras. So, yeah. uh, in Madras, after that. So, and we also, and in between, uh, Australia also two to India for uh, one day series, if I remember. So, that was telecast pretty much and that really kindled the spirit for, for one day internationals in India in terms of cricket watching. So I'm trying to understand because uh, I've, I've been seeing a few videos from the 70s and even 60s 
And even back then, I mean, uh, the test matches were so packed and jam-packed. I mean, talking about India, West Indies, 74, 75. So when you mean it took off, are you also talking about the takeoff from the television perspective, going into smaller towns and villages and people getting introduced to it? Television was a big thing because, uh, Sid, till the 80s, it was radio and it was... Um, uh, it was a uh, newspaper. You have the uh, very famous image, right? The outside the Hindu offices in Madras or in Chennai now. So people used to go in their bicycles and wait outside and watch the live scorecards being updated, right? Because India used to have their own scoreboard when India used to play test matches overseas or especially in India. So the access was a big problem. So the 83 changed it. And as, as Bala talked about, 1982 Asian Games brought in the color TV. So... People were able to get TV sets at homes or uh, in, a, in a few homes, and that started to revolutionize. And also, very interestingly, till the 80s, India as a BCCI as a, a cricket board and India as a cricket team were very, very uh, test match centric. I wish that that was the case in now because now we are so much into T20 and uh, one day cricket. India as a team, as a board, they were more so test match centric. Uh, just to let you know, India had never gone to Australia or India were never invited to Australia to participate in a tri-series as a tri-series team. Only when India used to tour Australia as a test team, test series, we used to participate in a, a tri-series. So we were a test match nation. We Crowds used to watch test cricket. But 83 kind of changed it. And as uh, as Bala talked about the champions of champions in 85, and in fact, I remember the Rothmans Cup, uh, the game he talked about, uh, the 125 India and 87 Pakistan. Iftikhar, uh, the Pakistan commentator, Imran, he took six wickets, right? Six for 14 in that game. When he exactly. dismissed Ravi Sastri for none, and Iftikhar said, and Imran has dismissed him, and the champions of champions has gone for a duck. That's how Iftikhar, uh, the partisan Pakistani commentator said back then. So, but again, in between, again, one other point, historically, 83 and 85, India weren't a great team as... As Bala talked about, when the Australians came for the Ranji Trophy, 100th year celebrations in 1984, we were a pretty poor side. Even England beat us a lot at home in 84-85. So it, the results didn't matter, but the people started to feel that uh, India could get hit sixes. I still remember Sunny Gavaskar uh, writing about, uh, ever since you win the World Cup, second over, third over, people started to ask for sixes in the ground. So the expectation of the people from just India being competing in a test match and defending or drawing versus India can win. I think that belief, self-belief, and the advent of TV were the two factors. One of the things I want to ask you people uh, is, uh, and maybe Bala can start off, is that perhaps it was the first World Cup where there was no absolutely outright favourite because West Indies were in a kind of a rebuilding phase. Many of the main West Indies players didn't come, especially the fast bowlers, uh, Marshall and uh, Holding and Ghana. And uh, Richards was captaining, you know, Lloyd had retired and, uh, you know, even people like Carl Hooper were coming up. So would you say that it was a pretty, the first open World Cup? Yeah, that was uh, the case. But it was also believed that uh, India and Pakistan would make it somehow, would somehow make it to the finals. That was built up. I mean, build as the final that would be between Pakistan and India. But it was certainly an open World Cup, and uh, Australia were never in the picture in the, in the run-up to the World Cup. None of those, I mean, we didn't have this kind of countdown or series of articles. I don't remember reading, I mean, there were articles, general articles, but I don't remember these kind of segmented specific articles in the run-up to the World Cup. But in what little that we read, or at least I read, 
Australia was not mentioned in and it was a pretty open world cup <laughs> but i don't agree to the fact it was uh, an open world cup there was one favorite that was pakistan there was pakistan there was daylight and the rest so the whole humbug was india versus pakistan was built up in india based on delusion because pakistan had come to india beaten india in india in a test series they had gone to england they beaten england in england in a test series imran was making those statements i want to beat india in india pakistan in, in sorry england in england i want to win the world cup so imran had those goals great captain they had a much better bowling attack and a very strong batting lineup they were the easy favorites and i still remember i don't exactly remember the english journalist who wrote uh, uh, that particular piece this is before ted corbett i believe uh, he clearly stated that pakistan are favorites india will reach the finals and lose to pakistan in eden gardens it was that kind of a prediction but yes bala was right there was a lot of feelings in india amongst the regional press and others it was a hope that we would love to see an india pakistan uh, a final at the eden gardens because even prior to the few months prior to that pakistan came to india for a six match one day series they won 5-1 now vaguely remember a, a game in pune when wasim akram was un playable i mean sunil gavaskar shrikant were like playing out of memory i mean everyone right so they were the favorites and again one other point west indies i think this is something I want to highlight right because england players and australian players get a lot of flack when they skip india like bala mentioned uh, ian botham and david gavat uh, or richard hadley but we are somehow cutting a lot of slack to west indies players malcolm marshall and gordon grenish were tied within quotes to tour india and they didn't tour india for the world cup so Yes, uh, Joel Garner had retired. Clive Lord had retired. They were in a rebuilding phase. But a couple of prima donors, Malcolm Marshall and Gordon Greenish, were too tired, or they were not bothered to come to India. So somehow, West Indies players are not questioned or challenged. The amount of uh, scrutiny we put on the English and Australian players. So yes, Vivian Richards had a side which was uh, going through a bit of a rebuilding phase. And Australia, I agree with Bala, uh, were a very. I mean, they were like. Uh, not just the retirements of greg chapel and others they also had they were badly uh, stung by all these pack i mean not the packer the south african rebel tours so they had lost a lot of players um, so it was uh, india pakistan but pakistan being the favorites and west indies uh, were the other ones and no one thought uh, highly of new zealand and also the other factor was uh, most of the games india played in india and pakistan played all the games but some of the games from pool b Uh, the other pool ha- happened in india as well so i think the advantage is mostly you play in front of the crowds and the pitches were favorite favorable to you so you expected uh, the home teams the two uh, subcontinental teams to go through the finals that was the expectation yeah in many ways it was uh, like the 96 uh, world cup as well right because group a happened uh, pretty much in india i think probably all in india and group b happened uh, mostly in pakistan except for like a few games so uh, for me personally i mean again i am probably i was too young but it seemed like um, the group b seemed like uh, games i was just uh, you know hearing about and not really watching too much of uh, maybe i saw some highlights of it but uh, most of my memories are from group a i don't know why, if it was because of tv coverage or uh, what about you guys do you rem- do you remember watching all of group b as well He, I uh, not all of all the matches. I mean, I was in college, so I couldn't watch all the matches. But personally speaking, I felt the coverage from Pakistan television was much better because it was uh, between PTV and uh, Doordarshan. They had split it uh, when they won the. I mean, when Doordarshan decided to telecast, there was a lot of problems running into the World Cup. Doordarshan said it was not ready to cover it, and there were a lot of issues. And uh, government then again, Rajiv Gandhi had to interfere, and uh, finally the coverage had to. 
go through and uh, Dudeshan, I mean, at that time it was talked of very highly in the sense they were going to cover this match with four or even six cameras for the telecast and uh, Dudeshan had also had a special, uh, had a specialist flown from BBC and they had a session in Bangalore that was widely reported at that time and uh, Dudeshan talked of uh, its coverage pretty highly. But actually, when I, I mean, my remembrance of the telecast was Pakistan television's uh, coverage was far better than Doodashan's, if I remember, I mean, sorry, go ahead. Yes, sorry. so Bala is right. I mean, uh, Sid, there are a couple of things, right? Uh, yes, so I, think, I think to come back to your first question about that, uh, you said the first ever game between India and Australia. I mean, that was the second game because... The first ever game was between Pakistan and Sri Lanka uh, in Group B uh, oh. from Hyderabad Sindh. Okay, this is the second game, but I'll give you an important point. That day we had another equally interesting, those days they used to have two games. I mean, so England played uh, uh, West Indies. It was a great game because it was, I mean, what we used to do, the India-Australia game was the second game or the, the game on our side. It was televised. But in between, they used to go uh, for a few, I mean, they used to call it a grandstanding telecast and they used to take you to the Gujaranwala game and show it. But in the evening, we used to get highlights from both the games and the PTV presenters will present the highlights from that game. The Doordarshan commentators used to do it. So on day, in those days, used to have, you know, simultaneous games happening. So probably we didn't get to see the whole game. So uh, that's again the point. The day when we had the Madras game between India and Australia, the Gujaranwala game was a great game and Alan Lamb tore into... Uh, Courtney Walsh and uh, won a very, very close game, uh, which was unthinkable. I think he, he pretty much scored 91 runs of the last 10 overs or so. So so I think Sid, that's another point. And I completely agree with Bala in terms of the coverage because despite having a BBC expert, Durdashan coverage is poor. And also, very importantly, uh, I think the Hindu or the sports star, they used to send KP Morgan. I think he was the athletics correspondent. He covered all the Pakistani games. And he used to write tour diaries. I mean, it was fascinating back in 87 reading the tour diaries from Pakistan uh, from an Indian perspective. And he used to say, in those days in India, we used to have trunk calls. I mean, I don't know if anyone remembers those. Like trunk calls means he used to place a, uh, put a request uh, into a telephone exchange and the operator will call you back and then connect you with somebody and you have to choose time. I mean, three minutes, four minutes, whatever. But in those days, apparently in Pakistan, KP Mohan used to read this, they could call people directly from Lahore to Karachi or Karachi to Islamabad or whatever. And that facility and telex was facilities were available in the press boxes in Pakistan, while in India, to submit a report or telephone facilities were absolutely abysmal. He said, working in Indian press boxes to Pakistani press boxes, like in a chalk and cheese. And, and then Bala was right, the visuals were much better. And that was the case even throughout the 80s. Rupa Vahini from Sri Lanka, PTV from Pakistan were much better than Doordarshan in terms of the quality, production, edit, as well as the, you know, even the commentators, I would say. I mean, I agree with Bala on that. And and talking about that match that you brought up, uh, the England-West Indies match, I mean, uh, I think uh, Alan Lamb had uh, also gone after Bruce Reed a few months before, right? In the final over that here. Was, uh, at Sydney, yes. Sydney, yes. Yeah, he was in quite a, a purple patch of form in that, uh, during that time. Yeah, certainly, because uh, that particular Sydney match was terrific. He took 18 runs of the final over of Bruce Reed. He finished off in five balls with one ball to spare, if I remember right. And this this was pretty much like Dhoni that Dhoni that we see of late. 
see as uh, vijay pointed out it was around uh, 90 odd runs in the last 10 overs and uh, 31 or uh, 32 runs in the last 3 overs uh, that was uh, right up alan lamb's uh, alley because but he, remember he just had the tail to he, he had a good partnership with emure then with defreitas he finished it off with neil foster neil foster he, in fact he hit the winning runs but uh, at that time uh, uh, courtney walsh had a uh, first two matches for uh, first uh, among the first three matches the one against pakistan and one against this was the first match for uh, west indies and uh, he was all over the place in the final over he had a four wides he had a no ball he had a awful tournament but uh, lamb through the i mean he was very pivotal for england in the 1985 a series and after that uh, that particular match you referred to he uh, in fact i still remember at, at the time it, that match was not telecast in india but they showed the the final over in one of those uh, news one of the doordarshan news i still remember he was not standing in in one place that was unique because we are we were used to seeing cricketers standing i mean their stance being stable he was going around that was pretty interesting and he did pretty much similar against walsh in the final over yeah so sid i think very interesting you brought up about uh, you you brought up the topic of alan lamb right because alan lamb the first time i saw him was uh, 1984 when uh, england toured india he was considered a bit of a suspect against uh, spin bowling i mean shivarama krishnan had him in a bit of few knots but he was an excellent player of fast bowling being a, a south african descent right so lamb had i mean as bala pointed out i remember watching the highlights of that uh, sydney game the 85 bruce street game uh, back on rupavai in the sri lankan rupavai they used to show games from the benson and ages and bala was right he used to move around a lot and he was he was very very a pioneering one in terms of moving around and making the bowlers bowl to where he wanted them to bowl or used to get the room and all and uh, the gujranwala the other interesting thing about gujranwala uh, john embury scored some good runs and more importantly philip defreit i mean you could see these signs right because a few months before that during the english summer uh, when pakistan toured england they played three games they used to call the texaco trophy games the third game was a very close game i forgot it was uh, publish best and i don't know exactly the ground i think it was a 213 or something uh, pakistan scored when uh, when england were chasing philip defreitas came and scored a, a very quick 33 or 32 not out and i remember watching that in one of the tv news reels back then and it was same repeat like few months later the world cup and philip defreitas played some you know uh, bold shots and uh, and i think balas red neil foster finished off the game it wasn't lamb who hit the winning runs it was neil foster who hit the winning runs so alan lamb had the bit of the pedigree in those days to finish off games and to be sort of a finisher i mean finisher is a word that's a bit of a misnomer because i don't think there's anyone called a finisher he was a good uh, player when it uh, comes to the the final overs and uh, play i mean get some good runs of the uh, quicker bowlers and as balas said courtney walsh had an absolute shocker patrick patterson was good but walsh was i think he badly missed malcolm marshall malcolm marshall was badly and sorely missed by uh, west indies in the tournament for experience did they have uh, so they had anthony gray right as the other bowler um anthony I, gray i don't remember they know i think the benjamin winston benjamin 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 and i think baptist was uh, eldan baptist was eldan ashford bas yeah yeah eldan baptist was there Gray, I don't think Tony, Tony Gray, Tony Gray, right? Tony Gray. I think he played in the Sharjah tournament in 1986. Uh, 
I don't remember Gray bowling in the World I Cup. I think Gray was in the squad, but he probably didn't play. But talking about Walsh and that horror tournament he had, he still went back with a award from the Pakistan government for not uh, monkering Sal- Salim Jafar <laughs> in that match. I mean, that was a huge moment at that time, right? I mean, I remember uh, again uh, my granddad was uh, talking about it for a long time. Everyone was talking about. Uh, Walsh doing that he could have easily mankered him but he let he sort of gave him a bit of a warning and uh, was that a big then yeah it was talked of very highly because he actually did i mean i don't know whether you know avm saravanan who has a avm saravanan tamil film producer who has a way of folding folding his arm actually walsh did that he folded his arm he didn't mankered uh, uh, salim jafar I mean, he didn't exactly warn. He didn't say anything. He just folded it his arm. And at the time, while watching, we were not really sure what was happening. So uh, only after uh, the commentator explained, we kind of understood what was happening. And it was a huge thing. And as you're right, Pakistan government gave gave him uh, this thing, special prize. It, it was a carpet. It was a carpet. And, and uh, a long time after, I read a report of Martin Johnson. He had uh, specifically mentioned last year. Courtney Walsh was trying to go fly home on that car carpet. <laughs> that was a typical West. I mean, Englishman. Because India was India and Pakistan was seen as a land of magic, magic carpets and typical. I mean, from an Englishman's perspective. So I think the other joke that, was that uh, the other joke was that had Walsh actually gone ahead and monkered at Salim Jafar and West Indies had won the match, then he would have needed a carpet to get out of that ground. <laughs> <laughs> exactly. Exactly. <laughs> <laughs> yeah, I, I said I vaguely. Rem- I, I, rem- I re- sorry, I didn't say I, uh, wrong choice. Of the not vaguely. I fully remember watching that game because Abdul Kader had hit a six of him, and yeah, then yeah. I think they required two of the last ball, and Jaffa was a few, uh, in, not inches, few few feet away. And as as he rightly pointed out, I'm not sure about Avian Saronan, but it was like a, it was one of those poses, right, when he had uh, both the arms linked uh, close to the chest, and then he was a li- fairly nervous, and he kind of warned him and walked away. What really I remember from that game was because West Indies West Indies had lost the first game in Gujranwala with uh, Alan Lamb uh, smoking uh, Walsh. This was the second game. The problem for West Indies was uh, England and Pakistan and West Indies are the three strong teams, and Sri Lanka was the fourth one. Everyone would beat Sri Lanka those days, but uh, having lost to Pakistan and uh, sorry England and uh, this Pakistan game, Vivian Richards was staring at a, a very difficult task. So. When the winning runs were hit and the camera moved to Vivian Richards, who was in the covers, who was on his back. I mean, you know, he, he, he was completely exhausted. He was on his back, you know, eyes closed. And there was a poignant moment because he was a great captain, great champion. And he knew that uh, that was the moment, probably and possibly, West Indies lost the opportunity to get to the semifinals. And I mean, I, I don't know what the reaction was back then in terms of the Walsh and his behavior. But you're right. When he, I think they gave him a, a sportsman award. Ziaul Haq, uh, the then Pakistan uh, president, he gave him a medal or a medallion. Uh, yes, the carpet story was also correct. So it, it was pretty big in the press and um, uh, in terms of uh, being sportsperson. But nowadays people would debate whether it's uh, sporting or whether that robbed West Indies. Uh, of an opportunity to seal a semi-final spot in a World Cup tournament. But two of Walsh just to clarify, this was uh, this was West Indies' third match because they had played the second match against Sri Lanka, the 360 for four. 
where richard uh, richard 181 181 181 okay okay that okay. was the second that was the second maybe i'm wrong because i i still i mean I, you could be right i haven't checked but i was under the impression they lost the gujranwala they lost this then the karachi game happened maybe you're right i mean maybe in between they played that uh, the three and i think i mean i uh, yeah i don't know i mean i'm just also saying this from my mind i don't know okay talking of zia ulak that was very interesting sorry sorry to interject see zia ulak i mean now that you have brought up zia ulak i mean zia ulak was very instrumental in this world cup coming to uh, india and pakistan in a strange manner because in 1980 i mean this is totally off tangent this is not about cricket in 1986 there was a lot of border skirmish between india and pakistan so again england and australia raised security concerns and uh, they said they may not want to tour uh, india and pakistan for the world cup so the tensions had to be brought down and india and pakistan had to show that somehow that there were not many problems between the country so zia ulak he made a impromptu trip to india in the, in 1987 and sometime in january or february for the jaipur test when in india and pakistan were uh, playing this uh, five match test series which we lost 0-1 as uh, vijay pointed out earlier so zia ulak came to india impromptu that sent out the signals that things were pretty okay between india and australia and the tensions were cooling cooling off and that was what helped uh, india and i mean australia and uh, england to make up their minds to travel to india india and pakistan for the world cup i think bala is right uh, sid bala is right because i think this is called as operation brass tacks this was the uh war games that were getting played out uh in the rajasthan deserts in 86 87 and it was one of those tense moments and bala is right both england and australia expressed concerns i think there is a one more story before that because the three uh, protagonists who brought the world cup to india uh, indar singh uh, indarjit singh bindra and tagmogan uh, dalmia they had a meeting in mare in the hill town uh, of pakistan and i think that topic was brought up saying how do we break the i think ziaul haq or probably the pakistan cricket uh, uh, chairman uh, those they were called bc noor khan air marshal noor khan i believe bccp they were known as i think that was ex, uh, expressed to them saying that this is a problem and in that it was inder inderjit singh bindra who Noor-Khan. told ziaul haq why can't he come and visit india for a cricket game and he took that invitation he showed up uh, for the jaipur test uh and that jaipur test and if i if i'm right lala amarnath the first indian captain or the, the former indian captain he was on who was seated next to him to explain the the intricacies or the nuances of the game and uh, bala is right i think that broke the ice and india and pakistan kind of realized uh, war wasn't an option and they went back to their uh, bases and then uh, the cricket world cup uh, was conducted uh, uh, in a smooth manner wasn't this the jaipur test where uh, gavaskar got on first ball exactly Yes. Yeah, so yes. I think yes. I think there was even a cartoon I remember which said that uh, uh, Gavaskar got out even before Ziaul Haq could enter the stadium or something like that. So it was Yes, the, yes. There was something to that effect. Yes. Yeah, because yes. they were trying to do a pun on his walkout against uh, Lily in Australia as if he was walking out against Zia as well. So <laughs> Yeah, I think the I think the, the craze was Sunny was Sunil Gavaskar was very close to the 10000th run, right? So this was the test match, third test match uh, after the Madras and the Eden Gardens test. 
So there's a third test match in Jaipur and Sunny couldn't get there and he got it in the next test match in Ahmedabad. Maybe it would have been a little more historic had Ziaul Haq been there and had Sunny Gavaskar got the 10,000 run in Jaipur, but it wasn't to be. And as you're right, I mean, uh, as well, I think he was the only batsman, if I'm right, who got out to the first test first ball of a test match three times. Uh, I could be wrong. I think three times he got out to the Imran and probably Malcolm Marshall and uh, Michael Holding once. I think three times, first ever ball of a test match he got out. Yeah, and talking about Sunny, I mean, it was uh, pretty clear. I was just re uh, going back and reading a few reports then. And uh, everyone, the, the general sentiment seemed to be that both Imran and Sunny would pretty much retire after this World Cup. I mean, uh, and they were saying how the two legends of the game from India and Pakistan, it'll be their last World Cup. And then they were tying it in with the fact that if India and Pakistan play in Eden Gardens, it'll be a fitting farewell and things. So... Uh, is, is, but Sunny didn't really do much in the World Cup, right? I mean, apart from maybe one knock or... No, no. If I remember, he had a decent very... In fact, he ended up as a top scorer for India in, throughout the series. He had a century at Nagpur and he had two fifties. He had a, I mean, decent World Cup by his one-day standards, if I remember right. And that century at Nagpur was brilliant. I mean, it was very un-Gavaskar-like innings. But the seeds of that uh, that uh, knock was perhaps sown in 1986. Again, it, we had to go back to Brisbane, where we chased around 250-odd against New Zealand. Gavaskar opened and went after even Chatfield. 27. He scored just 27, but of 17 balls. That was the first time we actually saw Gavaskar in a practically un-Gavaskar-like batting. He had a six. He had to, three. He hit him for 17 runs or something in one, one Ivan Chatfield over. So, he uh, again, in Nagpur, he went after Ivan Chatfield. And that was the fastest. At that time, it was the fastest century in the World Cup. Uh, and uh, it was not alone, not just for the fact that it was the fastest century. There was pl plenty of needle between Gavaskar and Kapaldev before that match. The previous match was against Zimbabwe, if I remember right. And it all boiled down to net run rate. And Kapaldev felt that Gavaskar, he had 50 of 100 on what balls, 110 or 112 balls. Gavaskar had a 50 in that match. He didn't exactly name Gavaskar, but uh, he said the team should have gone pretty fast, knowing fully well that the uh, entire semi-final thing is going to be decided on the net run rate. So, because we were chasing 190-odd against Zimbabwe, and we got it around perhaps in 40-odd uh, overs. I don't exactly remember that. But Gav I remember Gavaskar getting a 50 in 110 or 112 balls, something. And couple they had specifically spoken about that. And it, and the papers were writing that Gavaskar was personally stung by that, this open criticism. It was not an open criticism, it was an implicit criticism. And Gavaskar was also running high, high temperature. He was constantly on medication all through that innings. He was, his papers had written he was taking paracetamols and stuff like that. So he was mentally very strong. Because Gavaskar wanted to prove a point that he was also a one-day batsman. And he also wanted to go on a high, though it didn't eventually happen because we lost, lost the semi-finals. But it was a good tournament for Gavaskar, considering that he was not exactly a one-day batsman to score a century, which he had, which he had never done in his entire career in one day, and also 250s, and to end up as, a, as the top uh, scorer for India all through that series was great, because he started his career as the top scorer in that series in 
1971, he ended his career both in tests as one-day one day series as the top scorer. I mean, you can't have a better reign. Though he didn't, uh, the final final hurrah was not a winning one. As a batsman, he practically did what was expected of him. So, Sid, uh, on that question, uh, two things, right? You talked about Imran and uh, Sunil Gavaskar, right? So, Sunil Gavaskar had announced his retirement uh, from Test cricket at Lords the year before, and he knew that Bangalore Test against Pakistan was the last. I mean, that's why he played with great innings. So, the World Cup was obviously the last international tournament he was going to play. I don't think Imran had announced it, but it was understood that Imran wasn't playing beyond that. Winning a World Cup uh, at Eden Gardens, uh, Calcutta, was going to be the, the icing on the cake. Now, I think Bala was right about a couple of things. The India-Zimbabwe game, the needle in terms of the sunny um, uh, couple thing, because India didn't want to go to Lahore and play the semi-final, because had we topped the pool A, we get to play in Bombay uh, at Wankhede Stadium. Uh, if you were second, we had to go to the Gaddafi Stadium and play uh, in Lahore, which we didn't want to play. I mean, you don't want to go to Pakistan play semi-final. The other interesting thing, I mean, two things, right? Uh, it's very interesting that... Uh, the GABA game from 85 when he smoked uh, Ewan Chatfield a few times. That's interesting. And he played some uh, terrific strokes in that uh, Nagpur game. Uh, yes, fever was right because a lot of times he was uh, on his haunches. He was kneeling. I mean, he, he was, he, you could see that he was visibly uh, unhappy and he was, uh, his, his health wasn't pink. But the other interesting thing, Sid, I mean, this is a bit conspiracy. There is no evidence. Uh, you know, Sunil Gavaskar, had stopped or had start, started to boycott Eden Gardens as a cricket venue because ever since what happened in 83-84 in West Indies and 84-85 against England, he had stopped playing. In fact, one of the reasons why when we played the 1987 Eden Gardens test, uh, I think Srikanth opened with Arun Lal because Gavaskar was, had pulled out. Imran won the toss and put India in because it was an inexperienced opening and he wanted to take some early wickets. So the World Cup final being slated for Eden Gardens, there was a talk that you know, there was a confusion whether Sunil Gavaskar was going to play. On one hand, there were people who said Sunil Gavaskar was very, very keen to play uh, in the game and finish off his career. And as always, some of the Mumbai Mirror and a few other, uh, you know, tabloids started to say that he would deliberately underperform in, uh, at the Vankere to let India not go there. I mean, I don't believe that holds any water. Sunil Gavaskar wouldn't do any such thing. But unfortunately, got out to Philip Defredes, And as Bala said, he didn't get the, the final hurrah. Uh, so interestingly, yes, he proved a point uh, to couple by scoring those quick runs. Uh, but the fact that uh, there was some question marks about his availability for the Eden Guns final was a very, very intrig intriguing thing. And I still remember it was not in the press, but there were a lot of people uh, in the town where I lived. Uh, and few people were openly saying Gavaskar didn't got out deliberately to stop India from getting the funds. I don't believe that. Sunny, I, knowing Gavaskar as a cricketer, he wouldn't do such thing. But there were some whispers of that uh, back then in India. Interesting. In, so, fact, it was, in fact, it was also reported in, I, I think it was reported in India today. I remember reading an article by Dilip Bob. Uh, it specifically talked of Gavaskar not wanting to go to Calcutta. And another conspiracy theory that particular article suggested was both the semifinals. I mean, then again, it's a conspiracy theory. Nothing ever was really proved. Both the semifinals were fixed by the match fixers in India and Pakistan. And it was pretty well known in certain circles that India and Pakistan will not make it to the final. This was actually reported in India today. Dilip Bob wrote an article, I remember reading it. He was the deputy editor and he, was, he used to cover cricket for them. And uh, he specifically talked of it. 
there is uh, i still remember the usage the story uh, the story that is gaining currency is that these matches were fixed of course it can't be proved words to that effect so those things were certainly mentioned in the press also it was uh, i mean as vijay rightly pointed out there were a lot of whispers among i mean among the fans also but it was also reported and there was an article in sports world also if i remember right so we have spoken about uh, so many indian batsmen that have come up but the one indian batsman who i associate with that world cup hasn't come up yet navjot siddu sixer siddu and it was such a big, i mean for me seeing siddu I mean, and if you look at the stats now he didn't hit like that many sixes he hit good amount of sixes but uh, you know back then that was a big deal the way and i think siddu was also making a comeback right into the team exactly see uh, uh, the particular match first match very first match against uh, australia in madras that was a revelation for uh, for many of us to see siddu because in madras itself we had seen siddu in this uh, 1983 test match against west indies where he was labeled as uh, strokeless wonder by rajan bala famous journalist for indian express and uh, I, i've heard that siddu took that clipping uh, which said the strokeless wonder and he pasted it on his uh, bedroom and every exactly. morning he used to wake up and he used to exactly. read it exactly and he exactly exactly one day i will show rajan bala who i am and he came back that's i mean that's great i mean very good of siddu to have done that because we didn't expect siddu to be the kind of batsman he proved in that world cup because we never thought he had it in him and he it was not a one off thing he actually really did that uh, he was terrific against spinners because i never seen anybody with a better footwork against spinners because it was yeah i don't remember i mean a few times he would have caught uh, he could have been caught in the deep not in that 87 world cup subsequently but his footwork against the spinners was precise and most times it would come off that i can i mean very few because it was not easy it was calculated very precise that he both his foot, footwork as well as the completion of the stroke was precise and uh, all through the tournament he had i think four, 450s or something he was very consistent and you're right he wanted to prove a point to rajan bala and rajan bala wrote an article after that that uh, chennai match that he has proved me wrong or something words to that effect so that was very very good on sidhu yeah i mean you're right uh, sid i think uh, the 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 monica uh, sixes sidhu was very popular uh, both in the tamil or the regional press vernacular press as well as in the, the english uh, press as well you're right he used to step out a lot but again i think rajan bala was right to call him a strokeless wonder Uh, it's one thing to face in 83 in a test match malcolm marshall joel garner uh, andy roberts and uh, michael holding i mean good luck in trying to hit them for sixes in a one day game against uh, uh, peter taylor or uh, uh, greg matthews or a, i mean it's very different so look i think rajan bala was right he was a strokeless wonder uh, throughout his career but he was an excellent player of spin bowling he showed that in the tournament he played the spinners really well and i would like to bring two other stories that happened Uh, after the tournament to prove how good he was against spin right i think when england toured india in 1993 he pretty much ended john embry's career john embry was a good spinner even back in 84 85 when he toured india he took a lot of wickets along with edmunds he literally smoked him in that bombay test in 93 then a lot of people don't do that i don't give credit to him in the famous 1998 uh, chennai test when shane warne and sachin tendulkar played for the first time 
it was Navjot Singh Sidhu who took on Shane Vaughan first in the, the third innings, and then Sachin Tendulkar continued, and Vaughan recognizes that fact. So Sidhu was one of the very best players of spin India has ever produced. He wasn't a Brian Lara, but he was a really, really good player of spin bowling. He could, but he had the bit of the Lara streak of stepping out and hitting bowlers for big sixes. Uh, and that proved to be very useful for India because in that tournament, because in that tournament, pitches were, some of them are dry and turning. Most sides employed two to three spinners. So playing in a spin in the, I mean, uh, Mohamed Azurizin was a very good player of spin bowling. Pinksaka was good as well, but Sidhu's six hitting ability was really, really helpful for India to control those middle overs. And I remember 98, talking about 98, uh, even uh, like Ian Chappell on air was so impressed with Sidhu. He was saying he has a golf swing and maybe once he retires from cricket, he can take up golf because that's how clean that swing is when he used to come down the track against Shane Wan. So, I mean, a, a player like, a, a commentator like Chappell, who himself was an excellent player against spin, being impressed must be, must tell you something. So going, moving on to, you know, the, so I guess the league stage and uh, uh, very good points about Gavaskar. I remember the Nagpur uh, innings, but I didn't, I really missed my mind that he had made two other 50s and uh, that he finished on a high. So maybe there is a bit of a narrative hole there that <laughs> needs to be fixed uh, in terms of uh, how we perceive it as well. But one small thing about that Nagpur game was also the Chetan Sharma hat. That, that was, uh, again, a moment that was, re uh, again and again, they, were they had showed it on highlights. And uh, it, Sharma was so elated after that third wicket. I remember he just pumped his fist and he kneeled exactly. on the ground. And <laughs> yeah, that was kind of a redemption for him after this, uh, this thing. I mean, uh, we, at the time, Kapil Dev and uh, Roger Bini were talked of, and he was, Kapil Dev had backed uh, Chetan Sharma to the hilt. So he was. Uh, I guess there was a Haryana connection there as well. Exactly, exactly. <laughs> and uh, he was not uh, getting those wickets. I mean, he, otherwise, uh, apart from that uh, hat trick, he had a very average tournament otherwise. But uh, this hat trick was, I mean, purely from a per, uh, spectator's per, uh, point of view, it was pretty interesting because all the three were clean bowled. There was no confusion, nothing, no element of any doubt or anything. So, and uh, if I remember, I mean, from, from my personal recollection, that was the first hat-trick that some of us had seen on a live television. I don't remember seeing, there was one hat-trick at the time of Jalaluddin. I don't, I mean, I don't think any of us would, in India would have seen it or, I think, or was it after this or before that, I don't remember. No, Jalaluddin was the 83. Jalaluddin was 83. Okay. Uh, we read about it where none of us had probably seen it. This was probably the first hat-trick that we had seen it. So that was that much more interesting and uh, great because of an Indian. And all the three were hat-tricks. I mean, uh, clean bowl, I'm sorry. Uh, all the three clean bowled. So it was pretty good. And uh, If I remember, I, it was Jeff Crow, uh, Chatfield, and one more, right? Ian I don't think it was uh, Jeff Crow. I think it Ian was. Uh, I think it was Ian Smith, uh, Smith Chad Willie Watson. Willie Watson. Watson. Could be Watson. Willie Watson. Or was it Rutherford? Kenny, was Kenny Rutherford included? I'm not too I sure. Think, uh, I think if my in my memory it was Rutherford, Ian Smith, and Willie Watson. And I uh, could I be think wrong. Rutherford, Smith, and uh, maybe Watson or Chatfield. One of those. Yes. Okay. Okay. Hmm. Yeah, Chatfield. Oh, yeah. So on that, uh, Sid, very interesting about Chetan Sharma, right? 
So Chetan Sharma was the next big thing of Indian fast bowling. And he took those 10 wickets uh, in the third test. We won the Lords and Leeds test in 86 in England, the Edgbaston test. And he was the only Indian bowler to have ever taken 10 wickets uh, then or even till the 2000s, right, in England in a test match. Now, I think there was, I think he was considered Kapil's uh, prodigy, but there was Manoj Prabhakar, right? And I mean, as the rumor mills would have it, there was a bit of a friction between Kapil and Manoj uh, in terms of their styles and, you know, how they approach the game. And, and as Sanjay Manjadek has written his book, in which we have observed, uh, Manoj Prabhaka was pretty much a quintessential Pakistani type cricketer, while Kapil and Chetan were more of the Indian type uh, cricketers. And there was an accusation that uh, Chetan wanted to bowl fast, but Kapil was more of a conservative, cut down the pace, cut down the pace kind of a thing. And he wasn't allowed to express himself. But even this tournament, right, some games Kapil and Manoj played, I think I don't think there was any game where all the three played. Uh, so interesting. I mean, you know, as I said, as ba, as uh, Bala talked about, Chetan had that uh, 1986 Australasia Cup final, Javed Mian, that six sitting on his shoulders like a like a, a monkey for a while. And uh, I mean, I wouldn't say this was a redemption, but still, the fact that he helped India to win that game um, uh, the way they had to within 42 overs. I mean, they bowled them out for 220 odd, and then Sunny Gavaskar played that brilliant innings. And we got there in 33 hours and uh, got to play the home semi-final in Bombay. I mean, Chetan could be, should be very happy about that. One game that um, I want to talk about, especially because we haven't spoken much about uh, Zimbabwe in this tournament. I mean, uh, you know, is that uh, game in Hyderabad between Zimbabwe and New Zealand, where Dave Horton played uh, one of the great innings in that time. I mean, to, uh, I think, uh, nearly... Uh, <laughs> an improbable target and uh, it was uh, never, I, for me per, personally, of course, I was watching everyone for the first time, but to see Zimbabwe bat, to see a batsman from Zimbabwe bat like that was quite something. And he was a very, very good batsman at that time, right? Yeah. See, the, that match, uh, I remember only catching the last few because I think I, uh, I had a, yeah, I mean, class to attend that day and I came, came home pretty late. And towards the end only I started watching and it was only, at the time, the Houghton was, was totally destroying the New Zealand bowling. The la I mean, I remember watching only the last two, three overs and he was pretty much going out with every ball of it. And he took a sensational catch of Martin Crowe. I, mean, I think Martin Crowe's catch was, uh, was decided as the best one of the entire tournament. We had, a, we had the Bush, Bush company, this television company, electronics company that was sponsoring the best catches of the tournament. I think the Martin Crowe's catch to dismiss David, uh, David Horton was declared as the best because he ran all the way back and took it somewhere or somewhere or long on or long off. I don't remember long on or long off. But that innings was really special. I mean, what little I saw, two or three overs, and so subsequently I, I read a lot about it. He was clinical. And uh, that was something, uh, that kind of, because yeah, Zimbabwe had uh, won an interesting match in, uh, against Australia in uh, 1983. A lot was expected of Zimbabwe. Their fielding all through the tournament was terrific. And John Trikos as the captain was good. But they lost all the matches. They they did well in patches, but they never won any of those matches. The batting was inconsistent. Bowling again was no. I mean, they couldn't manage it again in Indian conditions. That was pretty easy meet for the opposing batsmen. 
Yeah, I think uh, Sid, I watched the game. I, I, that's one of the highlights of the tournament because that was the Fateh Maidan or the Lal Bagadur Shasta Stadium game. Uh, I still remember because they used to have the scoreboard at the ground level on one of the ends, which means when you see a batsman looking up, I mean, facing the ball, you could still see the scorecard uh, or the manual scorecard. It's one of the, 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 the unique uh, grounds in India. So Martin Crow played well. And I think David Houghton was a very, very good player with spin bowling. I remember, I think they had three spinners, uh, Stefan Bock, uh, probably John Bracewell, and I don't know who the third spinner was. I think they had three spinners in the game, if not to Bock and Bracewell, I don't know the third one. He swept, reverse swept, and the partnership, I still remember, uh, everyone was enamored by David Houghton, uh, but I think the guy who scored a lot of runs was Ian Butchard, if I'm on 60-odd runs he scored, after Houghton got it, even hit a six. I remember that that day after watching the game when I went and played the street cricket, I called myself uh, Ian Butchard. So it was it was such a, for a 10-year-old to watch a game like that and then to see New Zimbabwe lose a close game with three day, three runs was such an inspiring thing. Now I'll tell you one more thing about Dave Houghton, right? Because uh, you were right, uh, the expectations were there, uh, Bala, but uh, you lose the game and then I think they played Australia at the MH Chidambaram Stadium in, in, in Madras or Chennai now. So the Tamil news, the Durdashan Tamil news, uh, the Shobana Ravi, the, the famous news reader, she read out the saying, pretty much they were building up the game saying, you're watching Australia with Zimbabwe, but you get to see Dave Houghton bat. You know, that kind of a, a build-up was there for a player from Zimbabwe. So he was, was almost a cult figure based on the innings because I wouldn't say it was a classic innings, a lot of sweeps and reverses, a lot of pyrotechnics were involved. And I think a lot of people felt bad uh, that Zimbabwe lost the game. Uh, and but it had such an impact. But I, I agree with Bala that uh, I think somehow they they didn't have the bowling attack. And I think there was a guy called Rawson, if I if my memory serves me right. He was pretty good, Jeff Rawson or something. He had a bit of pace, but otherwise it was a very workman-like pedestrian team. Um, they just you know competed there for numbers. It was Peter Rawson, and uh, Peter Rawson and uh, Kevin Curran were the ones who reduced India to 17 for five in Tunbridge Wells, and uh, after which Kapil came in and. Uh, uh, a lot of the players uh, who played in 83 also ended up playing. I think Buchart played in 83. Uh, Houghton was there, Rawson, Tricos. So that was, uh, you know, a lot of familiar names were there. But one thing that strikes me when I think of, um, you know, Houghton and Lamb and a uh, few others that we spoke of, maybe even Azar uh, at many parts, was it was probably the last World Cup where you got to see so much of bareheaded batting and, uh, you know, where uh, a few players chose to not wear uh, uh, helmets and uh, even if they wore the helmets, they wore the grillless helmet. So you could still see the face and uh, even uh, Gooch in the semi-final, you know, that, uh, I mean, I think Gooch probably only hardly wore the grill anyway, but uh, I, I think that the World Cup also had that element of uh, where you remembered the batsmen's faces when they were going after. I mean, Horton... It was the one thing in my memory is always, you know, how that uh, he was bareheaded for so much of the innings and he was just going crazy and probably even wore a headband for, and Richards wore a headband against Sri Lanka as well. And that famous uh, image is uh, still stuck in my head as well. Yeah, yeah. I mean, uh, it's interesting that you remember people's faces uh, through Doodashan's telecast or something. I mean, that's amazing because uh, <laughs> most of the time we, we could barely make out the contours of the uh, person batting or bowling. I mean, talking of headboard, I think uh, Rumesh Ratnayake used to bowl with the headband. Oh, yes. Fantastic. 
Ravi Ratnayaka occasionally, not regularly, okay. but incidentally, uh, since Vijay pointed out uh, Martin Snedden, Ravi Ratnayaka and Martin Snedden, they opened the batting and bowling. I think they both opened the bowling and the batting in a couple of games for their respective teams. That's one of those few things in 1987 World Cup. So Ravi Ratnayaka yeah. was the Jayasurya before Jayasurya. <laughs> <laughs> No, uh, no, I think, you know, no, I, I think uh, you're right because the pinch hitters, right? Because Kapil used to open in a few games, I mean, later in the 80s. Ian Botham used to open the shoulders. And, Didn't know, Chetan Sharma open shoulders. and get 100 or something? Yeah, that was 89, Nehru Cup. Yes, I guess. That was in Kanpur, correct. Now, coming back to helmets, I'll, I'll, I'll give an interesting point. Right? Yes, uh, you're right. Most people used to, even Sachin Tendulkar in the 92 World Cup in the Dunedin game in New Zealand, right? He was... Helmetless for a while, even he scored at 84, which was his then highest score. Now, coming back to that, wearing a helmet, not wearing a helmet, and Vivian Richards thinks it's a bit of a bravado not to wear a helmet, but he still wears a, you know, a guard uh, to protect his private parts. And it's, I don't want to get into the Tony Gregg's wife uh, debate about whether you want to protect a head or testicles. That's a different debate. But let me come back to the point about helmets. Salim Yusuf was injured in that semi-final against Pakistan. When ball, right? Had he worn that helmet, he wouldn't have been injured. This was a freak injury that uh, he got a hit and he was out. And Javed Neander had to keep wickets for 20 odd overs. And to me, that could have been a difference between a five or 10 runs. So it's all fine and dandy to say that we didn't wear helmets and we were brave, etc. But when these things happen, you lose a match, you lose a semi final. So uh, since you talked about, I mean, I think you're. you're Context was different, but I just want to bring up a topic that lack of helmets and how almost Pakistan lost out an opportunity because Salim Yusuf was injured in that semi-final when he was keeping to a spinner, Tosi Farmer. Absolutely. And now that you're yeah, talking about pinch hitters, the semi-finals, McDermott was sent up, uh, up the order as a pinch hitter, if I remember right. He came down four down or something. Correct. Yes, like, yes, no. yes, you're right. So uh, I think we haven't, I mean, sorry, I mean, on that, I, I would like to talk one thing. I mean, I'll, I had two... Uh, I wouldn't say guilty pleasure. I had two uh, heroes who I wouldn't mention, but as a 10-year, Ian Butchard was one. The other guy was Mike Valletta. I mean, not many knew oh. about him, but he was one of those flashy guys who would play some very nice innings. And I remember both in the semifinals and finals, even in a game against Zimbabwe. So for me, the two heroes out of the World Cup were Ian Butchard from Zimbabwe and Mike Valletta. I mean, I think the Western Australian. Uh, and uh, he played some, you know, he used to play some very lovely shots and uh, he used to be a busy player, uh, Mike Valletta. Not many would know about him. Yeah, and he, had a, he had a fantastic uh, semi-final and final, right? Yeah, yeah. Yes, he did. He was very diminutive and looked un-Australian in terms of pure looks because he had a moustache and he was short-statured. He, he was not a typical Australian in that sense. Of course, we, in terms of moustache, you had also David, Bo David Boone and... Alan Water had a kind of a, this thing. He had a grizzly beard or something like that. But he was very un-Australian in his looks. And he was, as Vijay said, busy player. Busy is the operative word there. And both his innings, was, they were terrific. I mean, that actually it was the difference between winning and losing. I mean, as he said, he's slightly underrated. But without his two innings, Australia would not have won both the semis and the finals. And of course, Steve was was always there, but uh, Michael Valletta's innings in both the finals and semis were the I think, uh, real clinchers. Yeah, I want to talk a bit about the semis because if you look at the you know history of one-day cricket, I think that particular game uh, is probably up there for the biggest 
uh, upset, I would say. I mean, upset not because, uh, you know, Australia were a pathetic side or anything, but to go to Pakistan that and play that Pakistan team, Imran's Pakistan, go to Lahore and in that atmosphere, in an era where hardly won in Pakistan, to win that game, I, I, oh, that is like quite an achievement. And I mean, through the World Cup, one of the heroes for me was Jeff Marsh. And, uh, you know, I always used to, when I used to bat, bat uh, even few years later, I used to always try to bat like Marsh and Boone. You know, I used to alternate between Marsh and Boone. And uh, Marsh became a big deal for me in that uh, World Cup. But yeah, through that, I mean, one thing that uh, I read recently was that only Alan Border in that whole team had played in a World Cup before. So to take such an inexperienced team to Lahore and win, my, uh, that must have been like a phenomenal achievement. Uh, Alan Border was actually pretty low-key with his batting all through the tournament. David Boone and uh, Jeff March. Jeff March incidentally scored two centuries. The only guy to score two centuries in the tournament was Jeff March. Both had 400 plus and Dean Jones had around 300 plus runs. They were the main scorers. And of course, Steve Waugh came up, Steve Waugh, and they had uh, interesting all-rounders. Steve Waugh, Simon O'Donnell, uh, Simon O'Donnell and uh, Moody. Tom Moody. Moody. And uh, Simon O'Donnell, that particular match, in fact, he was fined after the match, if I remember right, for not participating in the team celebrations. But he, uh, the story later, it came out pretty, pretty later that he was, um, at the time, he had come to know that he was suffering from, he had a lump around his rib cage. So he had known that he was having early stages of cancer. So uh, he knew it, but he had not shared that detail with the team. He couldn't, uh, that uh, he went to the tournament with that lump in this, uh, this thing uh, around the rib, rib cage. And, uh, and uh, it came out a couple of days before that match. Uh, he had understood that uh, that cancer had come. So he couldn't exactly participate in the team celebration, even though he had played and he was part of the team. So he was fined for not participating in the team celebration. Apparently, he told Simpson pretty later that he had a... And he was kind of forgiven. Or at least, I mean, I don't know whether he was forgiven or not. That was how the story panned out sometime later. These things I read several years later. And this particular match... It, uh, as uh, Vijay pointed out, that 18 runs that uh, Steve was scored of the last over of uh, Salim Jaffer, that proved to be pretty crucial. And Imran Khan was pretty much panned for his decision to go with Salim Jaffer uh, for the final over. Because uh, there were other bowlers to go also. But yes, why he chose Salim Jaffer is still a bit of a mystery. Of course, it is the captain's call. It can go uh, either way. And... Uh, Another thing I remember from, from the particular match was the emotion in that stadium. Towards the end, the, the chants of Allahu Akbar from the Lahore Stadium and women, women holding placards saying, we will miss you, Imran. That was genuine. I mean, the surge of emotions in the, at that time was genuine and it was interesting because we have not seen much of cricket from Pakistan before. And uh, women chanting Imran. Imran Khan, even then, was a, I mean, he was a... Uh, Big star, he had a lot of sex appeal and stuff. But uh, from Pakistan to see women going, uh, we will miss you, Imran, and chanting Allah, but that was pretty interesting. Yeah, Sid, I think this is one game, in my opinion, I think football World Cup has got much, I mean, for cricket, test cricket is ultimate. So World Cups are not that important compared to test cricket or ashes. But football World Cup, they chronicle it really, really well. 
I would like to compare the 1987 semifinal in Lahore to the very famous game that happened between Italy and Brazil in 1982 in Spain and Barcelona. Because that was a champion Brazil side with no defense, of course, uh, and Serginio as a striker. The Italian side, thanks to a Paolo Rossi hat-trick, they happened to upset them and they went on to uh, win the tournament. That game, I think still uh, Jonathan Wilson has written about the game as the ga a game where football lost its innocence, right? That was a day when the system succeeded against the flair and, uh, and the favorite uh, players of the world. I wouldn't call the Pakistani side of 87 cricket as a Brazil of 82 because Pakistan were mercurial despite having a lot of talents. But as everyone, I mean, as, we, as we've been talking about, the Australian side was pretty much, uh, you know, it was a work in progress trans, 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 transition, side in transition. To go to Lahore, and if I'm right, that was the first ever time Australia has beaten Pakistan in a, a one-day game in Pakistan. To do that in a World Cup semi-final, that takes a cake. So, and again, you're right. I mean, for me, that game was very interesting because first time we see a lot of games from Pakistan, they had segregated uh, stands for women. They used to be called as ladies' stands and fully used to be fully occupied by uh, you know, women from Lahore and other parts of Pakistan. And you're right, that's the first time I've ever heard religious chants uh, in, a, in a cricket ground. Um, Bala is right. Allah Akbar, uh, Pakistan, Jitehai. I mean, I'm not very good in Hindi or Urdu. So those kind of chants, especially when Salim Yusuf walked back. I mean, Salim Yusuf was injured uh, when he was keeping. Then when he came back to bat, uh, when Abdul Qadir, who had already scripted an improbable win against the West Indies by hitting the six of Courtney Walsh, when they were batting, we knew that Pakistan was going to lose, but the crowds, you could see the energy in the crowds. I think there was almost a belief that this Pakistan side could move mountains. This Imran side, again, very important. It was not a Pakistan side, it was the Imran side. I mean, it was very different. It very subtle, very different. It was Imran's team, and there was no, re there was no reason, uh, there was no way Pakistan was going to lose in Lahore, but yet Alan Border's team did the improbable. So to me, that has to be one of the biggest upsets. And also, let's, I mean, I don't, I mean, uh, I think you need to say one thing. Dickie Bird was a very, very good umpire, but he made two mistakes. I would like to point out in the semifinal because he watched every ball of the game. So we talk about Mushtaq Ahmed's uh, googly in that 1992 World Cup final to Grant Hick. Uh, he beat him lock, stock and barrel, one of the best one-day deliveries to be bowled by a leg spinner. In that semifinal in 87, Abdul Qadir bowled an absolute peach of a uh, googly. And Dean Jones had no clue about it. He was beating lock, stock, and barrel. And Dickie Bird, for some reason, didn't raise a finger. It was, it, it was plumb hitting the middle of the middle. Then <coughs> Pakistan were chasing. And after that early three wickets, 25 out for three, and I think they had Mansur Akhtar, Ramiz Raja, and uh, Salim Ali caught out. Imran and uh, Javed Mayandar were building a partnership. And I think uh, Imran went for a slog sweep of uh, border and got, uh, I think he had a top edge, or umpire Bird thought he had a top edge and caught by Greg Dyer, the keeper. Uh, I think Imran was a little shocked and uh, umpire uh, raised the thing at Dickie Bird. But then later, Dickie Bird apologized to Imran, saying, you were nowhere close to the, the bat. Look, you can't blame umpiring decisions, but those were two important decisions. But as I said, that one game of World Cup semi-final has to be chronicled more because it was a great Pakistani said, red hot favorites. Australia were rank outsiders. They went to the Lions' den after playing all the games in India and beating Pakistan and Pakistan and Lahore in those days. That has to be the biggest upset, very close to the Brazil-Italy game from the 82 semifinal. Yeah, talking about the reactions, um, I've seen an interview of Imran after that and 
he says how it was uh, you know as if uh, they were in the middle of a funeral at the end of the game and uh, everyone who came up to him i mean first of all people were so hesitant to come up to him and talk to him because uh, of uh, they saw the disappointment and uh, in his face but then even the when uh, his teammates uh, uh, the manager and a few other people you know when they had to talk to him they came to him and they said uh, uh, imran uh what happened and he's like uh, you all saw what happened you were all there you were all what are you asking me what happened but he said that it was almost as if we were at a funeral because that's what you go and ask people at a funeral you say what happened or you try and uh, you know commiserate with them and just thinking thinking of it uh, you know as a thought experiment if pakistan had uh, won that game which <laughs> the odds were very high and if they'd gone to eden gardens and played beaten uh, england in the final um do you think it would have been i mean i think it would have pretty much been uh, the uh, great uh, great farewell for imran and i wonder sometimes what would have happened in 92 then then would it have been martin crowe's year after all <laughs> i mean the possibilities are immense you can always think on those lines i don't know i mean i mean you can still argue that england could still have put it past pakistan in uh, in uh, eden gardens our uh, pakistan winning in the semi finals would have impelled india to have played better against uh, england in the semi finals and it could have been india versus pakistan i mean it's just a hypothetical situation you can always say the you can imagine it so so you never know and gavaskar could have gone out on a high he could have scripted an india's victory i mean i would like to think so because uh, having been a gavaskar fan i would like to think in a, in that way okay so said one other point i mean i think as uh, as uh, balas talking about conjectures and uh, you know surmises and uh, you know hypothetical situations but let me put it this way yes again this is a world cup podcast and uh, you know right i i love test matches more but one thing we would have missed out was the great pakistan west indies test series that followed the world cup in 1987 88 because had imran won the world cup uh, in in gardens at uh, in gardens in, in in 1987 he would have probably retired wouldn't have come back because to me the test series between west indies and pakistan in 1988 that was played out has to be one of the very best unfortunately it was not televised it was not televised it was uh, you know it, it was a series that pakistan should have won if not for some dicey umpiring decisions but some great vivian richards imran stories and so many subplots and uh, you know storylines and narratives that series wouldn't have played out the way it was because had imran not been there pakistan wouldn't have competed that much and then of course as i said 1992 world cup but again these are conjectures and you know hypothetical situations which we could go on and on yeah yeah of course i mean i was uh, not uh, trying to get too serious here i just keep wondering uh, you know the what ifs of cricket if? scenarios not just this i mean there are so many in cricket that just throws it up so going from uh, lahore to bombay as it was back then and uh, ravi shastri and maninder singh <laughs> somehow focusing on the outside the leg stump line uh, leg stump line uh, which i think back then also was quite inexplicable why they were constantly doing that and graham gooch uh, as the headline went swept them out of the semi final <laughs> yeah i mean as we were i mean everyone has pointed out because right from start the toss we should and the, the conditions were overcast and couple thought it would uh, swing and uh, he thought it would be in favor of the bowlers 
but purely from a general point of view we should have batted first i mean that was the general belief we didn't do that and vijay as vijay pointed out right at the start uh, bengsakar pulling out pulling pulling out of the last moment was a major blow for indian indian team and we didn't have a plan b couples uh, uh, captaincy in that entire match and of course his batting came under a lot of criticism much later but uh, his captaincy was inexplicable there was no plan b at all see after gooch and uh, getting got together and began sweeping there is the bowlers were totally clueless and the fielding placements were also i mean we were able to see there were they were swooping as uh, sweeping and there were no there was no real protection uh, for the uh, i mean for such a shot that is totally uh, i mean uh, uh, when i exactly when i look back it is uh, it beggars belief that how can something of this i mean this was pretty much school boy stuff from a captain and a fielding team and in our batting too even after all this even after kapil got out towards the end we were still around say uh, for the last 10 overs with five wickets in hand we had just around 51 or 52 to get and i think azhar was still at the crease i don't know azhar or i don't know he could have still managed because uh, there was kiran more there was ravi shastri ravi shastri had a very poor tournament for india because uh, he had a terrific uh, the 85 world championship of cricket and uh, the tight test was practically his because he shepherded he shepherded the batting tail and he, he was the real uh, standout performer in the chase but he had a very ordinary tournament for india ravi shastri both his bowling as well as batting never really came through so this particular match the semi finals i still remember because couples batting and uh, he hit hedy hemings i think hedy hemings the sweep shot and it uh, uh, getting openly criticized uh, that was a silly shot to play at that moment words to the effect he said said that after the after the match for a opposing captain to spell it out is uh, that was pretty interesting quite and, and, and quite uh, ironical considering what happened few days later what happened after that exactly <laughs> i mean like karma is a bitch it came to bit him back in his back that's how i remember that particular match so i mean uh, i think two things right one pakistan got knocked out yes uh, from a cricketing perspective it was a big yeah. loss because uh, imran side deserved to be in the final but uh, being an indian you didn't want to face pakistan because pakistan had started to become the nemesis of india or the bugbear or the bogeyman for india uh, in the 85 to 87 period by beating india in india as well as uh, in charge and other places so we were very happy that pakistan lost the semi final in lahore but i think i still remember uh, there was a thought before the semi final uh, for my i mean as a 10 year old was india was going to win the world cup again because we almost thought that we were going to beat england because in bombay vankhede stadium and then we can beat australia because you never thought australia was a great side but again bala brought up an important point about uh, kapil dev winning the toss and inserting the opposition but i think the tournament i think in that tournament uh, if my memory serves me right a lot of captains were doing it because the starts were early because it was october november which means the sun was it was winter technically in india which means you had to start those games around 9 o'clock which means early starts uh, you know any bit of moisture it's not a test match right, where you can uh, leave the ball leave the ball and you know play the play out the first session here if you lose a couple of wickets it could be a difference between winning and losing so i think kapil put them in 
I think, the, as I pointed out, Dilip Wengsak was a loss. I think the most in, in, inexplicable thing about the spin bowling was, apparently everybody in the journalistic community knew that Graham Gooch was practicing for sweep shots for the two, three days prior to the semi-final. And all the net bowlers, I mean, all were left-arm net bowlers. Uh, they, they had kept on bowling to him on the off-stamp outside and all. I don't know. I mean, whether they were uh, spies from the Indian team on the England camp, I don't know, right? But Bala was right. But before Bala, what Bala said about Kapil, about the game was right, his captaincy. But in my personal view, I watched Kapil very closely on TV for a long time. To me, he was the most overrated Indian cricket captain. See, the 1983 happened. That is one of those black swan events or whatever you call it. It happened, right? But Kapil was never tactically smart. He was a good, well-meaning, all-round cricketer with a lot of natural talent. But to call him a great captain was a travesty, which is done by a lot of business schools because we won a World Cup. That's a problem, right? We, we equate uh, an outcome to, uh, to a lot of series of events. But anyway, that's my personal view. Uh, I think the biggest problem, I think one of the things, I mean, he talked, I mean, Bala talked a lot about how India capitulated to the spin. One striking memory of the game was Mohamed Azharuddin was batting really well. I think he scored 64. And I think the sports star that published it uh, the next year or the day after, Azhar got out to a paddle sweep. Right? We talk a lot about the reverse sweep. David Houghton played it, Javed Meander played it, Michael Gatting played it in the finals and he lost a wicket. But paddle sweep was not that common, right? Because paddle sweep was, Azhar was kind of playing well. And as the, 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 the great thing about the picture that Sports Star, the magazine, published was Azhar's tongue would be sticking out to the right. Uh, I, I'm just trying to uh, rehearse it in my mind. I think he was playing the sweep. And the tongue was to his right, out, sticking out. And the ball hit him, and it was a straight ball. He missed it, and Eddie Hemmings, the, the wily off-spinner, got him out. And so, like, we criticize a lot, but paddle sweep wasn't that common. I mean, in one-day cricket, they were playing, but in test cricket, again, Azhar was the one guy who got out in the Hamilton Test of 94, and that didn't allow India to win a test match uh, seven years later. So he got out of paddle sweep. After that, there was a fair bit of panic, and Chandrakant Pandit got out. And also, the other interesting thing, slow balls, right? Somehow, there is this myth that... Uh, Steve Waugh and Simon O'Donnell were the ones who were the pioneers of the slow ball uh, in the 80s. I remember Neil Foster bowled a couple of good slow balls. I mean, as uh, Bala pointed out, Durdashan coverage wasn't good enough to pick a lot of those things like the Channel 9 or the BBC One. Uh, Neil Foster used to bowl. And in that game, if I'm right, uh, uh, Neil Foster bowled a couple of good slow balls. And uh, it was a bit, bit confusing. And, and Bala was very right. India didn't have a plan B. Once we lost Dilip Saka, once Graham Gooch uh, assaulted the Indian spinners out of the game, we, we simply like, you know, lambs for slaughter. And, uh, you know, we just, we caved in and uh, we lost the game meekly. Very disappointing because that was a game. Had India won, I believe India would have won the World Cup final. It was a big missed opportunity, especially after Pakistan losing in Lahore the day before. India should have won the game and uh, should have gone on to compete uh, at the Eden Gardens. That was a big missed opportunity, very disappointing one at that. So going, so moving on to Eden Gardens, I mean, um, you know, it's interesting about the semi-final. Uh, I just quickly went to the scorecard now and I saw that England scored 254. Uh, but again, you know, the, the narrative of Gooch is so large, I guess, because uh, the English have... Uh, uh, you know, made that the central focus that uh, you somehow think that, you know, they made uh, closer to 300 or 300 plus. 254 was a good score at that time, I think. But, you know, for an Indian team playing at home with such a batting lineup, I would think uh, it was still achievable uh, and under those conditions. And as you mentioned, they did get close. I mean, with Azhar 
batting and azhar was a fantastic one day batsman uh, and azhar batting and uh, you know even uh, if you take out pandit still you know with uh, kiran more who was a very very happy batsman prabhakar who could bat chetan sharma who could bat i mean i think they could have got there but the one thing with england in that world cup uh, was i mean similar to what we are talking now of england was the depth they had uh, these uh, very interesting players you know even differators it was differators who could bat who also could come in and make that quick uh, 15 20 runs then you had embury who also was a handy batsman as well as a bowler and then you had uh, you know uh, uh, one of the players who i always remember from that world cup is gladstone small and uh, you know we we always used to try and bowl like him because uh, he he had this uh, slightly the, the shoulder and the neck uh, didn't have much of a gap so you know always try and imitate him and bowl like him so small ended up being uh, an interesting uh, player for them as well so moving on to the final um in eden gardens i mean australia england of course uh, again uh, a very very i would say uh, sort of attritional battle and not uh, like uh, either team you couldn't say either team was on top at any point of time to seesaw throughout and then uh, of course gatting gets blamed for it but i think even after gatting's wicket england were well in with a chance i think even even towards the end when defreitas was batting and with a few other tail enders a few big hits and they could have still made it beyond the finish line right after gatting's wicket alan lambs and uh, steve cleaned him up that was because as long as alan lamb was there there was still hope because he had uh, won two two matches before and uh, towards the end he was the most crucial player but uh, once steve ward took him out it was uh, pretty much uh, uh, in australia's way but still england kept going and eventually it was only seven runs which still remains the closest world cup final uh, in a final you to score over 250 plus uh, that kind of set it up for australia because it was a final and the 250 score was that was the threshold at that time 250 was kind of the match was more or less in your back and to, to do that in a final and that was a good start and boon had a terrific match boon did well veleta did well teen jones had a decent game so the batting 250 effort was a was the one which really set it up bill athe was underrated i mean he had a very good series against australia in australia the previous ashes where uh, england had a terrific uh, the run in australia one of the best uh, performance in australia bill athe was a kind of a revelation in that series chris broad unfortunately had a very average outing in this world cup in fact uh, they had to replace him with tim robinson if halfway through because he didn't have a good run it was much left to gooch the match was more or less in australia's favor but uh, the eventual result seven runs would make it to be a very close affair i think uh, you know in the two uh, steve war of course uh, when you t- talk of steve war on the world cup there is always that uh, image now of uh, you know the herschel gibbs drop and the 99 world cup and all that but i think uh, steve war delivered two of the most important uh, uh, balls for australia in uh, world cups one was the allen lamb wicket in the 1987 world cup final which was uh, quite a brilliant uh, ball to get him out and then that uh, ball to lara in the 1996 semi final which again uh, was the, one of the best balls of that world cup and uh, which got them to win that game and um, sort of go to the final i think uh, those two balls by steve war uh, need a bit to be highlighted much more than they are <laughs> 
Sid, being a being an Ian Chappell fan, I'm not supposed to say too many positive things about Steve Waugh. So <laughs> since you're talking about his bowling, I'll talk about it because I'm not going to talk too much about his selfish batting uh, because that will create a bit of a problem for a lot of New South Wales where I live. <laughs> so yes, I think those two balls are very important, especially the Lara one in Mohali was an absolute peach bowling around the wicket, uh, coming around the wicket and uh, it just moved off the seam and uh, Lara was really surprised that he got out. And, and uh, as uh, Bala said, the 87 final against Alan Lamb was very important as well. Now, coming back to your question about 1987, I mean, I just finals, I want to bring one more topic. You kind of alluded to uh, Sid that English press have made Gooch bigger than for the sweeps than it is. I think we need a bit of context. I think the sweep has to be called out because Abdul Kadir played two games against England. They, they had Gooch, who is a very good player of spin, in absolute knots because Abdul Kadir had them up in knots, right? So they had struggled a fair bit against spin. And everyone knew that Vankade being in the, I mean, a little bit of, you know, a slow pitch, spin would play a big part. If you had watched the game, spin was a big thing because Kapil was really clueless because Gooch was sweeping from outside the off stump. He was sweeping from outside, from the stumps, as well as then he forced Maninder and others to chaotic things. Then they started the ball short and wide outside the off stump. So it completely upset them because, again, as you would know, India is a land of playing spin very well, but Indian players don't employ spin that much, sweep very much, right? So this is a bit of a surprise. And as Pala pointed out, Kapil didn't move the fielders. It took a while for him to understand that he had to protect that side, right? So coming back to the finals, uh, finals, I think the one big thing was uh, the crowds. People thought maybe people would not show up. Maybe it won't be a 90,000 plus. Maybe it won't be 100,000 crowds. But in the end, we had a very big crowd. I mean, I don't think it was a full house, but 85, 86,000 people showed up for an Australia-England final on a Sunday, Ash, and they stayed on till the end uh, for the celebrations. And also one thing I remember, I think it's a small bit of anecdote, the TV coverage we talked about. I remember, um, I think it was Eddie Hemmings who bowled, and Dean Jones hit him at six. So the commentator was on Doodarshan, Narottam Puri. So he hit the ball and uh, Narodham Puri said, it's a six. But the camera never went to cover the ball. So we saw the batsman hitting. The camera work wasn't there to cover the ball going all the way to the mid-wicket along on where it went. So even for a 1987 World Cup final, the TV coverage was pretty poor. The other interesting thing, what uh, I mean, a lot of people miss out. Neil Foster bowled one of the spells of his life. I think for the first eight overs, he considered only 12 runs. I think it was absolutely immaculate, swung the ball a bit, and he bowled on a penny. I think in the last two overs, they took him for 20-odd runs. So those are, I mean, again, as I said, the Mike Valletta thing, uh, Neil Foster, uh, who bowled a very good eight-over spell, and then that Alan Border coming in bowling and uh, taking out um, uh, Mike Gatting of Greg, I mean, Greg Dyer's catch. I mean, some, there was some very, and Bill Atty, I mean, we talked about Bill Atty. If I'm right, he was run out 58 or 57. He got run out in that uh, final. So, yeah, and Craig McDermott. I think we haven't mentioned Craig McDermott's, uh, Craig McDermott's uh, performances because both in the semifinals and finals in the first game against India and Madras, he was lion-hearted. A lion-hearted Queensland. He bowled really, really well. I think Roger Binney took 18 wickets as the highest wicket-taker in the 1983 World Cup in England. In 87, if I'm right, it was McDermott who was the highest wicket-taker with 18 wickets. So, I think one has to give a lot of credit. Bruce Reed did all right because he took uh, Javed Meandad out in the semifinal in Lahore. But Reed was there or thereabouts, but Craig McDermott was, was magnificent in that World Cup for Australia. And back, back then, he was quick too, right? Compared to, say, 92, when he, had, uh, he was still very good, but not as 
quick. Yeah, he was the Billy the Tiger. Before he made his debut, Australia border had said he will let loose the Tiger on, I think that was against West Indies or so, I think, in the series in sometime in Australia. He said he will let loose his Tiger on uh, the opponents. And uh, McDermott, as uh, Vijay rightly pointed out, he had a terrific World Cup. In, to get 18 wickets in India was terrific. And he had a couple of good batting uh, outing also. As we mentioned, we talked of his uh, uh, pinch hitting in the semifinals also. He came four down. So, uh, McDermott, uh, Steve, uh, bowling, uh, because that was the first time we saw Steve uh, 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 slow a run from, from the back of the hand. That is uh, the first time... People were hearing about it. I mean, these days, pretty common. It was, uh, we saw it with Steve Waugh. He came of age as a death bowler in that World Cup. In those days, it was Doordarshan coverage. I mean, I'm not sure how many people know about the story. Um, so BBC was showcasing uh, World Cup games back in the UK and Channel 9, and then there's no cable or paid TV, right? Channel 9 was the, uh, I don't think they showcased every game, but they showed the final between England and Australia. This is a story that was reported by Mike Coward, and he has talked about it, and even Alan Border has acknowledged, so it must be true. So I, I got to believe it. So 87 was a, a Sunday game, a final. Uh, so as a morning game in India, which would have been afternoon, Sunday afternoon. So uh, Australian people on Channel 9 got to watch the game uh, to see their side score 253. When the England chase began, it was a Sunday evening. Channel 9 said, you know, who bothers about a 1987 World Cup coming from Edinburgh, India? They said, Let's switch off cricket, and they moved to they changed to a movie, a Sunday afternoon movie. Uh, I, I don't know exactly remember the movie. So basically, the Sydney and Melbourne, where forty percent of the Australian population lives, they didn't get to see their team winning their first ever World Cup because Channel Nine felt, who cares about a World Cup from India? Now again, I, I want to bring this topic because in India we have a lot of condescension towards England and the way they have snubbed Indian cricket. Somehow we don't do the same thing to Australia and West Indies when they do it to us. I mean, this is Australia's problem, but this is something Mike Covert has passionately talked about. I bumped into him at an Ashes test a couple of years ago at the SCG, and we talked about this as well, and he, he mentioned that as well. So that's very interesting. So Australian public, they didn't get to see their side winning uh, the tournament. Despite it was available on a Sunday afternoon, they decided to sh sh show an American movie at that time. Zudashin cameramen were apparently bribed or... Uh influenced by certain companies to show their uh, billboards during the telecast. These days, they officially do that because you pay, off, uh, pay, pay them as an official sponsor and they focus on the particular uh, this thing, uh, company's billboard. They were uh, privately bribed or influenced to show a specific, and uh, that was a huge controversy after the World Cup. And some of the Dudeshin uh, staff were suspended after that. I remember reading about it. Uh, Bala, even though the 87 World Cup uh, and that whole team, uh, Alan Border's team from the mid-80s, even though it may be not as well-remembered in Australia, I think in India and especially in uh, Madras, it's still very fondly remembered, right? And uh, Certainly, certainly. The test and that uh, one-run victory and the World Cup victory. Exactly. See, Vijay was very, sp I mean, really spot on because everything... That took off, I mean, took off from, uh, the Australian cricket really took off from that uh, uh, tight test. And uh, Mike Coward, who has, who has been to India several times in the 80s and later in the 90s, he's the one who has written about it. He's, he is really, specifically, he comes to the point that uh, Chennai, I mean, Madras, Madras set it up for Australia. And in 
Chennai itself, Dean Jones is a big thing. I, you can still go around the violence of triplicate and old, old people will still recall his innings. That was a big innings. Uh, phone memories, obviously, because Chennai crowd generally has a tendency to fall in love with the opposing players. That was a, I mean, specific place. Not all players, specific players. Dean Jones for one, Steve for another. And Chennai, then again, Chennai, Australia had another interesting match in Chennai pretty much in 1996. New Zealand versus Australia, quarterfinal. That was a terrific match. Wonderful mock war century, 1996. So Australia will always find Chennai very interesting position. But of course, the later day test matches were not all that kind to them, especially two Tendulkar centuries taking away the match from them. But they were still classics. <laughs> classics, absolute classics. They, I mean, those two, I mean, those test matches were greater than sometimes as close as tight test itself. Because uh, as Vijay pointed out, uh, tight test match, it's very difficult to recall. We all have to go dig into our personal memories to come up because we don't have any archival material to go back to and watch them. It's very difficult. We have to look at uh, reports and our own personal memories. So in that sense, tight test is slightly watered down in our memories, in our personal memories. So these later day test matches, which had better coverage, will always seem much more interesting, purely from, from the availability of footages. One person's name we should be talking about, I mean, we should have NKP Salve. Without him, this, this tournament would not have happened in 1987, because he was the man behind it. Because apparently, he was, I mean, everyone knows the story. He was snubbed, he couldn't get two tickets in 1983. That really started it off. So NKP Salve, he really plotted this, the way he went about uh, working behind the scenes, trying to win over the associate nation. The votes of the associate nation is what, uh, what brought the World Cup to India because uh, they, uh, India and uh, Pakistan promised a lot of money for the associate nation. They had around 26 votes or something. That was the clincher because uh, England was not ready to uh, give in to India and Pakistan hosting it the 26 votes of the associate nation. So apparently they were supposed to get uh, around 3,000 pounds per match or uh, from the entire tournament. I don't remember what, if uh, England had hosted. India and Pakistan promised 20,000 pounds to the associate nations. So thanks so much for joining us on another edition of the 81 All Out podcast. It was great fun talking about uh, the 1987 World Cup. And uh, we, we are looking forward to bringing you more uh, nostalgic posts on uh, other World Cups. You can follow us on um, iTunes, Spotify, wherever else you get your podcast. Please leave a review on iTunes if you like us. Uh, it helps uh, people to find us uh, when they do a search of cricket podcasts. And uh, you can follow us uh, on Twitter at 81 All Out. And you can go to our site at 81allout.com. In the air, Srijan takes it! India wins! He'll come back for the second. India have won the test match. India have won the series. They're going to get back for two. 